Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. We've been talking about God's presence as described in the Bible in different, I will call them strands of thinking in the Torah. Uh, and I intentionally call them strands of thinking to avoid calling them documents. Of course, people who believe in critical Bible scholarship would call them documents, J-E-P-D. Um, and so to avoid the question of whether you believe in that or not, I am calling them strands of thinking. Although Bible scholars will tell you these strands of thinking are J-E-P and D. And a lot of what we've been talking about these last four weeks is reviewed, described very well. I'll say it again in a book by Benjamin Summer, S-O-M-M-E-R, called The Bodies of God. So first strand that we looked at was the idea of uh, the word I love, corporeality, that God at times, Hashem can take, can choose to take physical form, which looks like a human which is described, labeled very often as a malach, which we um, um, mistranslate always as angel, but which originally seems to have meant, or at least in this strand of thinking, seems to have meant a physical manifestation of God. And we looked at those texts. And again, all those texts are in a handout. You can go back to the podcast from that week and find those texts. Then we looked at strand number two, which we said was associated with a lot of the texts that have to do with the priests and the worship in the, the portable sanctuary and later on the temple in Jerusalem, which is God's presence is called God's kavod, and the kavod dwells in the Mishkan. It used to live up there. It came down on Mount Sinai in fire. It is something like, maybe it has an appearance, because we did read one passage about uh, Moses and, and Aaron, Nadav and Avihu and the 70 elders seeing the appearance of God. Um, but that appearance is generally embodied by fire, and the fire has to be cloaked in cloud to make it safe for people. And that lives in the Mishkan. God's kavod lives in the Mishkan, in the Kodesh Kodashim, which is a sort of um, thought of as a kind of throne room for a king. Um, and God is sometimes referred to as the one who sits on the Kruvim, Yoshev HaKruvim, the Kruvim made of gold, which are part of the lid of the Aron. Um, and we saw a late, later priestly thinker, Yechezkel, the prophet Ezekiel, who then has to explain how Jerusalem can be destroyed, the destruction of the first temple, and the way it can be destroyed is that God's kavod leaves the Mishkan, and then the Mishkan is just a building, and the Babylonians can destroy it, and when the temple will be rebuilt in the future, Yechezkel has a vision of God's kavod returning to the Mishkan. So the theology, the ideology about God, I'm going to try to sit in front of the bright light, um, that is described in the strand which, uh, which, which, which 
focuses on priestly things, if you're a critical Bible scholar, you call that P, right? Says that God has a presence. It is called the Kavod. Maybe it has a physical image or not. Sorry, sorry, I'm going to take that back. Maybe it has a humanoid image or not. It is associated with very bright, blinding, and potentially dangerous fire. And so we are safeguarded by having it be shrouded in cloud. That's why the Kohen Gadol has to be very careful. Kohen Gadol can't come into the Kodesh HaKodeshim anytime, any old time he wants. Okay? It has to be with a sensor making uh, incense clouds only on Yom Kippur, lest the Kohen Gadol die. Um, and we read other stories like the story of Nadav and Avihu, who did something with the fire and the fire consumed them because they did the wrong ritual thing. So in the priestly strand of thinking, God's presence is called the Kavod and it dwells in the Mishkan. So it's not quite the corporeality, a word that I love, of strand number one, but it is um, a, I use some other word, uh, localization, right? God has a presence in this place and not in some other place, right? Doesn't mean God doesn't have power in some other place, but God is more here than there. And we talked a little bit about um, uh, people today and people's feelings, yes or no, about do they feel God's presence more here than there. Then last week, we looked at a third strand, which is referred to by Bible scholars as shame theology, which says that God's presence is not here on earth. God is in the Shemayim. God came down the heavens. God came down from the Shemayim. Michael, am I okay? God came down from the Shemayim. God gave divarim, or words, sometimes called divrei habrit, the words of the covenant. Um, these words are written on the tablets, right? Inscribed by God. And in the second version of the tablets, tablets that Moshe made, and Moshe made the Aron. It's a totally different story. Sorry, totally different strand of thinking than the last one, which is that the Aron is made as part of the Mishkan project, right? In strand number three, which is about God's word, Moses makes the Aron. The Aron is a receptacle for the Luchot, the two tablets on which are inscribed the Aseret Hadvarim, the 10 utterances, which is the Brit. And the text says, that's all that's in the Aron, meaning the Aron is not God's footstool or throne, the implication being that God does not dwell in the Mishkan or the Beit HaMikdash. Um, and we read Solomon's long, uh, selections from Solomon's long prayer at the inauguration of the temple in Jerusalem, the permanent temple, the stone structure temple, saying that Hashem, you are in, in the Shamayim, please look down to this place and pay attention to prayers. When people direct their prayers to this house, you please pay attention to their prayers from where you are. So according to this strand of thinking, what we have of God's presence on earth is sometimes called God's shame, God's name, sometimes called dvarim, God's words. That's all there is here. I, I don't mean to say that's all means there's not a lot, right? But that's what there is here, here on earth. 
no physical presence, no corporeal representation, just God's word. And that strand of thinking takes pains to say, and at the revelation at Sinai, you did not see any form. All, there, there was a fire and you heard utterances. Okay. So to us, with our understanding of five senses, to us modern humans, sound is just as physical as sight. But apparently in this strand of thinking, sound is seen as very, very different from sight, not on the same, not in the same category of sensory experience. Let's put it that way. And these texts take pains to say, you didn't see anything. There is no form, which is why Sefer Dvarim, the book of Deuteronomy, em emphasizes over and over again, do not make any idols, any images of God, because on the day of revelation, God uttered Dvarim, they were written down on these stone tablets, and you did not see any physical manifestation. There was a fire, but 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 there's no humanoid form that you saw in the fire. And the book of Deuteronomy says this over and over again. Okay? So we have then a third category, or a third strand of thinking, which of course critical secular Bible scholars refer to as D from the book of Deuteronomy which says God lives in the Shamayim. God does not live on earth. God does not have any physical body manifestation here. The manifestation of God is God's shame and God's devarim. Okay. We did a lot of text last time, and we didn't get a chance to talk about it at all. So we're not doing any new text today. We're just reviewing, and we're going to have time now for 15-plus minutes to say, what do you think? So if I can take you back to last week's class, reactions to uh, strand number three, which is mostly found in the book of Tvarim, Deuteronomy, about what we have of God here on earth is God's Tvarim or shame, not God's kavod. God does not live in the Mishkan. God is up there in the Shamayim, because of course they didn't realize that the earth was round and Shamayim is a concept that doesn't actually make sense for a locus of God. Um, so it was, I think, their way of saying, out there, up there, far away, not here. By the way, what does that make you think of in the book of Deuteronomy? When I say God is far up in the heavens, not here. Is the Torah, meaning Hashem, is in the Shamayim, which presumably is very far away, we had that sort of the uh, kind of the the uh, extreme or apotheosis version of this theology, which is Isaiah chapter 66 saying, God is saying, the heavens is my throne is the earth is my footstool, meaning like, you know, I am I am, I am infinitely gigantic. How could you possibly build a house for me? So God is in the Shamayim in this version of theology. The Torah isn't. The Torah is what's given to us. So that's a third way that this strand of thinking says of saying we have access to our access to God is God's shame, which is called on this house, God's dvarim, God's instruction or Torah. Okay. So we do have access. We do have, uh, I will call it representation of the divine access to representation of the divine, but it's something very different than a kavod or a malach. Larry, now it's your turn to say something about evolutionary. 
<laughs> right. So I think I said this last week, and this may be an example of presentism, presentism, which is attributing to past generations the thinking of today. But this almost seems like a, a process of increasing abstraction of the concept of the divinity and of God. We start off with a <clears throat> purely corporeal, anthropomorphized representation of God or his messengers. We move to some other physical manifestation. Then we move away to uh, something that is left over from the, from the physical, meaning the writing, et cetera, et cetera. I know that's not the way in which it developed. And I think that that is, to some extent, the way modern minds kind of understand the, the evolution, as, as, you, as you said, of the development of both Judaism and, and, and the concept of, of divine. And for me, it's the only way in which I can actually accept or understand these concepts of, of God. I would prefer to simply jump to the chase and have a more abstract concept of God because I find these others, including, when you haven't talked about it, the power of God on to intervene in, 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 in life to be not only distracting, but um, they make it impossible for me to, to think about God and divinity when I, when, I, when I think that others actually take them literally. So there I've had my say. So the only thing I want to correct in what you said is you'd say, well, it's probably probably uh, presentism. It's probably not really evolutionary. I do want to say there there are some Bible scholars who say this is evolutionary, that there is actually a um, unfolding of time. And over time, ideas about God became more abstract. That's one way of understanding it. What One way of framing these differences and yes, another way of framing these differences is it's entirely possible. Uh, by the way, um, the, the problem, I just want to point out. So so I want to say um, I have um, two concerns. One is, as a personal individual, of course, I want to work out my own theology about God. Okay. Uh, that's one concern. The other concern is, oh, but as a teacher, um, I want people to work out their own idea for themselves, which we Jews say, you don't work out just for yourself, you work out based on, you know, three and a half millennia of people thinking about it. Um, you know, you sort of try to absorb three and a half millennia of smart people thinking about it, and then kind of say, oh, okay, and where do I fit in there? Um, so as a teacher, I am much, uh, I, 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 I am careful about, um, as I said this last time, not wanting to privilege the evolutionary view and privilege the abstract, because that implies that that, by definition, that is more highly evolved. And then there's usually a value judgment on it, just like we say in modern times, well, he's, he's very evolved, that person, right? And that evolved is a good thing, not evolved is a bad thing. So I'd like to say, though, uh, again, to take it back to uh, Debbie's comment a couple of weeks ago about like, uh, about the Kavod, this verges on like Avodah Zara, idol worship for me. Um, you know, the person, the, um, 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 I, and I'm really not stereotyping when I, I say this. Um, I'm really thinking, cause we've all seen it in LA, like, you know, the, 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 the Persian women 
right, who do the things with their hands when the Torah comes around. I think they feel the presence of God. I think they would they would say, you know, kavod theology. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Um, so it's entirely possible that in the year 650 BCE, let's say, in, in, in by re, the first temple times, and today, that there are people sitting or standing next to each other who are participating in what is ostensibly the same religious system, who may have totally different understandings of what's actually going on. So those ideas may be, um, in time, actually parallel. Just want to throw that out there. Uh, and, and I'm not voting. I'm just saying, you know, uh, you know. So it's entirely possible to me that there was some Kohanim, because they were these, these were the deep thinkers of the of you know first temple times, the elite spiritual elite who thought that God's kavod lives in the Mishkan, and there were probably some Kohanim who thought like, ah, that's a concept because you know God fills the whole universe. How could God dwell in the Mishkan? Um, and I'm guessing it's entirely possible that there were people who stood shoulder to shoulder in the courtyard of the temple who held conflicting views of that then, as they do today in our synagogue. Why should we imagine that they were any different? That's kind of how I think about it. Right. Michael, I hope I can hear you, Michael. Yes. Uh, after, yes. Before, before I get to what I was originally going to say, you're talking about how the Persian women feel touching the Torah. It's more than that. When we used to carry the, the Torah in the Sephardic case around, we would carry it open. Yeah. And, and if you look at the Rosh Chodesh reading, you will find many places there where their lipstick still rem remains. They would they would kiss the, the, the parchment. Oh, anyway. Interesting. Yeah. Got it. Uh, I'm not sure that it's, it's linear from... Uh, in terms of evol evolving, because in the very beginning, in Breshit, we uh, God is referred to, it seems to me, as, as just a spirit hovering over, and then everything was created with words. So it almost is circular, if we get back in Dvarim, to, to uh, Hashem being in the heavens and communicating with us only through words. That's Good. the way yeah. that's how it started. Yeah, good, thanks. I want to say two things about that. One is, obviously, what we have in our Torah tradition is all of these strands are woven together. Okay, they're, they're, all, they're all there. Okay, uh, it doesn't mean that they would have agreed with each other at that moment, but they are all there. None of them is, I think none of them is privileged over the others in terms of how the author, whether that's capital A or lowercase a, depending on your belief about that, how the author put those strands together. Um, the second thing I want to say just to Michael, as a footnote, the critical Bible scholars would say that Breshi chapter one is actually written pretty late, okay? That mm -hmm. it was written by Kohanim, they say it's part of P, the priestly document, but it is a later, uh, much more evolved priest who uh, has a much more abstract 
concept of God, mm. right? Although, by the way, you have, again, there are, you know, Bible scholars point out these internal, you might call them debates, that might be uh, uh, too much to call them, intertextuality is the fancy word. So God says, let us make humans, bitsalmenu mutenu, right? In our likeness, whatever that means, okay? And of course, the commentators say all kinds of things. Um, Isaiah in a Haftorah that we read, maybe in Parshat Breshi, I have to remember when, uh, said, says, God says, I have no demut, right? So, so that is kind of perhaps an intertextual uh, locus. The question of does God have a likeness, right? Um, although it is abstract, pretty abstract, Michael, it's the Ruach and God creates with words, as opposed to, by the way, um, Breshi chapter two, how does God create humans in chapter two, right? In the, in the pottery studio, yeah, right? Pottery, you know, you know clay, for the word that's yatsar, right? Which is the word for uh, an artisan forming something, okay? It's not vayomer. So we actually have in Breshi one and Breshi two, Genesis chapter one and two. Let's call it different, right there, we have different ideas about, how God creates. We'll see other ones when we talk about the God of nature in future weeks. Um, um, and we have Breshi chapter one saying, but God says, I do have a demut. I'm creating humans in my demut, even though it's God says, rather than going into the pottery studio to do clay. Okay. Or the, operating, I, or the operating room. Or the operating room. Okay. But then, but then I, Yeshayahu says, God says, I have no demut. Who, who could say I have a demut? What are you, crazy? That's what Isaiah says. Okay. So we have the, these, by the way, what's interesting then is what we see is that within the Tanakh, there are these, I'm just going to call them different strands. I don't want to go so far as to call them debates or disagreements because that would be too unfrom of me to say. So I'll just say different strands, different ways of looking at the data of the world and trying to describe how God is in it and operates in it. Thank you, Michael and Larry. Other thoughts? Diane. Yeah, so so long time ago, I read some of the new atheists, um, Hitchens and Dawkins. And so they talked about, I, I don't remember which of them, um, the idea of God and dismiss, I think, as I recall, dismissed out of hand the I believing in the idea of God as being somehow, um, that's not really believing in God. And I'm wondering how the idea of God and God that's, um, more abstract, are they different? Um, well, if I understand your question correctly, which I might or might not, um, I think they are different in this. And the one who talked about this very clearly was um, Freud, right, who was an atheist, as far as we know, who said that all that this idea is something that comes from us and that we he called it. It's a projection. Right. Everything we say about God is a projection, which by, by which Freud meant, sorry, by which Freud meant. It's not actually true or real. 
It's from our imagination. We would like to think of God as a benevolent parent. So we create an old man with a beard in the sky. But sometimes there's a part of us that experiences a punishing parent. So we create an aspect of God that is punishing. But it is all our, uh, he called it an illusion, by which he meant it is something that comes from us that we project out there, which means it's not real out there. Just to jump ahead, maybe a month and a half or two, Maimonides, Rambam, would agree, I think, would agree with Freud that is all a projection because Rambam would say, we can't fundamentally know anything about God as humans, as finite humans. Therefore, anything that we finite humans think about God is a projection which comes out of our finite, finite human thinking apparatus. And God is infinite, which we can't, cannot conceive of. But the difference between Freud and Rambam and, is Rambam would say, but there really is something out there. Right. And everything we say about it is only a projection. We can't actually know anything. Whereas Freud would say, I think, there's nothing out there. And everything we say about it is only a projection. So I think that's how those two would talk about the idea of God. That's, I think, that's my, that's my preliminary answer, Diane. Thank you. Okay. There was a, did someone say a something? Okay. I'm going to add one more thing. Ben Summer says this in his book. I don't know if he coined it. He might not have coined it. Uh, it's kind of witty. Um, P, which we read two weeks ago, right? The Kavod, the priest of Kavod theology. He says, P is Catholic. D is Protestant, okay? Catholics believe, you know, there's some reality of God that we have access to, that the priests know about, that you don't know about, that the priests hold the secret information to. It's present in certain rituals and just rely on us, us being the experts, the priests, to tell you what to do, okay? Whereas uh, the... the, um, the Theology of sacred Tarim is more like, no, it's in the book. Okay. It's in the teachings. Now, the difference, of course, is that in Protestantism, it's sola scriptura. It's just me reading scripture unmediated in how I react to it. Whereas we would see that as very un-Jewish, right? We would see it. Oh, it's scripture filtered through, depending on, you know, when you think scripture was scripture, you know, filtered through two and a half to three and a half millennia of people who have thought about it. Other people have thought about the Dvarim and written their words about the Dvarim, and we understand them best by learning about them. Okay. But but the the, the ideology of Deuteronomy is more like on the in the Christian landscape, Protestantism, and the ideology of the priestly documents is more like Catholicism. That's what some Bible scholars like to say. Of course, what we didn't say yet is Deuteronomy's view, the, the, the theology of God's um, name, Dvarim Torah, this is proto-rabbinic, right? What do we have access to? God's instructions. We don't have direct access to God. This is where it's proto-rabbinic and not prophetic, I'm going to say it again. It's proto-rabbinic and not prophetic. You don't 
find out what God's will is for you, for me, for us, by having a prophet say, I had a vision, and in the vision, God says, do such and such. Or I had a direct experience of God, an image of God on the throne, like Isaiah chapter 6, right? The rabbinic ideology is, oh, we have a revealed text, and there are people who are expert in it, who explain it to us, and we know better what God's will is for us by studying that text under the guidance of those experts who have devoted their lives to studying it. All right. So this you could say if you're in in Bible scholar speak, you could say D is proto rabbinic. By the way, when is the shift? Uh, This is like, you know, on my final when I teach a class. Uh, So, you know, you weren't in the class, so you don't have to know the answer. But when is this when is the shift from prophetic to proto rabbinic? Anyone know? Okay. The shift is with Ezra and Nehemiah. So prophecy goes down to the the last of the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, in the early 400s BCE, meaning 20, 30-ish years after the Second Temple was rebuilt. And then in about 450-ish BCE, Ezra, the scribe, who is a Kohen, comes from Babel, sorry, from Persia, authorized by the Persian government, backed by Nehemiah, who is a Jew, who is sent by the Persians to be their governor of the province of Yehud, of which the capital is Jerusalem. And and Ezra has this thing called Torah Moshe Eved Hashem, the Torah of Moses, the servant of God. And he reads it publicly before the people. And there are people called Mevinim, or explainers, who explain it to the people. This is the origin of the term maven, by the way, right? As an expert, uh, it's from the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, it's read publicly. It's the first time we read in the in historical works about the Torah being read publicly to the people. And, and experts explain it to the people. And right around then, prophecy disappears. Except for their people like, you know, Mystics like Abraham Abulafia and, and Yosef Caro and maybe Rav Cook, who believed that they could have the powers of prophecy. But in, in sort of mainstream rabbinic historical ideology, prophecy ended because you want to know what God's will is. Just get a teacher who will help you study the book. All right. So we have a shift from, um, let's call it ongoing, you know, recurrent revelation of God's will to, no, there was a revelation of God's will. You can call it Tvarim, you can call it Mitzvot, you can call it Torah. It gets called a lot of things, but it's written now and it's in a document and you can study it with a teacher and you can learn what to do. That's how you know what God's will is. By the way, this theology goes so far, Debbie, all right, can you unmute? Yes. Thank you. Um, th- this theology goes so far that in rabbinic times, we have uh, a discussion of the debate of Tanur Shel Achnai is a particular kind of clay oven susceptible to uh, becoming Tame, impure or not. And Debbie, if you could just give us like a one minute summary of what happens in that debate. So in that debate, I think it was Rabbi Elazar is um, facing off 
with Rabbi Yehoshua and Rabbi uh, Gamliel. And he brings all kinds of, Rabbi Elazar brings proofs from nature and the nature responds. Um, and then a bot call, a voice of God comes out and says, the, um, the law is like Rabbi Elazar says, but they, they, they excommunicate Rabbi Elazar. The rabbis right. decide to go in a different direction. And what do they say? What's their line? Torah uh, Right. What Alan reminded us from Deuteronomy. So they're echo, the rabbis are echoing Deuteronomic ideology or Sefer Dvarim's ideology. We have the text so much so it goes so far in this exaggerated story. I think, thank you. You remembered well. I think it's Rabbi Eliezer. But we always, everyone always confuses Eliezer and Elazar, both in writing and in reading and in remembering, right? So basically, essentially, uh, essentially God in that story, that real story, imagined rabbinic story, whatever you want to call it, God backs Rabbi Eliezer. And the sages say, we don't care. Majority <laughs> rules. Right. That, that's why, by the way, that's why he's wrong. It's not just that we don't care. It's because he's the minority opinion. And our, I can't think of the right word, our a canon of how we decide things is it's the majority opinion of studying the text. And the majority opinion has said one thing. And Rabbi Eliezer gets God to do all these miracles. And then finally, there's a bot call. There's an echo of a voice from heaven saying, what do you want from my servant, Rabbi Eliezer? He's right. And the sages say, not interested, right? I mean, if there is ever, uh, I think that's a story that's really designed to capture the distinction between prophetic religion and, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, literary religion, okay, and privileged literary religion. It's the word and the interpreters of the word. Revelation was back then. Since then, God went back, but I want to sharpen it a little more. Since then, God went back to the Shamayim, where God hangs out, okay? And it is up to us to nurture, study, transmit, understand the word, and that is given over to humans to do. It's a very, 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 as we say in Hebrew, harif, picante, sharp statement and story, right? I hope everyone grasps the story. There's a continuation, which is just really challenging. Okay, we're not going to get into that now. Thank you. You did the, <laughs> you did the part. You did the part that I wanted you to do. Thank you. Okay. Um, without prep, just called on it. Was folks, we haven't rehearsed this before, right? Right. So it's very picante. Where essentially the sages are saying, "Forgive me for putting it this way, God, we don't really care what you are saying." That's not how we decide the law. You gave us a text, and we are doing our best to interpret that text, and that's how Jewish practice is decided. Okay, which is why, by the way, people like Abu Lafia, Yosef Karo, Rav Cook, you know, they, they wrote their writings, like, I think I might be a prophet. Uh, you know, the, the, their writings were generally not written for um public consumption. They knew that they were not in the mainstream and saying this. Okay, got to stop, got to stop, got to stop. Um, everyone have a Chag um, Sameach and a 
what are we going to do? Okay, so there are two more views of God in the Bible, uh, probably more than two, but two that we're going to look at, which is God as present in nature and God as present in relationship. So probably for the next two weeks that we have before our long break, we'll focus on, I think we'll probably only get to do God as present in nature, um, and that'll probably spread over two weeks. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.